Praise God. Yeah, Calvin kind of got this this word about a mustard seed, and, and Scripture talks about faith. If we could just have faith like a mustard seed, you know, we could move mountains. We could do powerful things. And, and so, uh, I mean, this kind of crisis is an opportunity to see faith grow. Um, but, man, we praise God that Calvin's here. And uh, thank you for sharing, Calvin. Oh, man, four weeks ago, uh, this happened, so... Well, I, I want to get into scripture today, but I want to pray before we, we do that. Lord, thank you again for the, the amazing things, um, God, that you're doing uh, in our community, how you sustain, how you heal, how you rescue. Lord, we, we all need some kind of rescue. Um, we're all facing a crisis, God. We've all got things that are kind of hanging over our head. And so, God, be our rescue this morning. Um, Lord, help us to... To, to hear your word for us, God, as we kind of pivot towards the celebration of Easter. May we see the heart of Jesus. Uh, may we see the life of Christ clearly. May we see what, what Christ was about, and may we follow. And so I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so this Easter, we're doing a short series called Jesus for Us All. It really is that simple. It's really that simple that Jesus came for the whole world, for everybody. And we're going to look at that. Anybody who believes can follow. And so we're going to dive into that, and we're going to see that when Jesus lived, he went under, uh, after some really unlikely people, um, that he included in his circle people that the world rejected, that the world cast aside. He went for the outcasts. He went for people on the periphery. Um, when I was the director of a nonprofit, I had to develop our board. And I remember talking to a board coach and different things about going after people who could help you. Uh, going after a lawyer, going after an accountant. These people can help you. Jesus didn't have that. He didn't have that mentality. He didn't go after people that could just help him. Now, that was good advice for a nonprofit because we need accountants and lawyers, and, and, and that's helpful to have on your side. But that's, those aren't the people that Jesus sought after. He didn't seek after the best and the brightest. He didn't seek after the people with the most outward talent or skill or charm. He went after people who were very ordinary and who felt very unqualified. In fact, those are the people that Jesus preferred to pursue. And so the next few weeks, we're going to look at how Jesus came for all people, and he used all people to reach the world. It's pretty powerful. And so this week, we're going to talk a little bit about shame, uh, which is fun. There's a, tr there's a twist for you. We're going to talk a little bit about shame and how Jesus actually went after those who others had shamed. Uh, when we think about shame in the Bible, and it, particularly the Gospels, one character that might come to mind is the famous story of the woman at the well. Who's heard that story before? The woman at the well who Jesus talked to. We might think about that, and you may know her story and know her shame. If you've seen The Chosen, it's, a, it's in there. It's a good episode. Um, and maybe her story has given you hope the story of, of Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And this is actually the story I want to dive into today. Uh, but I want to tell you this at the out front. This character, the woman at the well, is more complicated than, than you might think. Um, recently, some scholars have questioned some of the assumptions that we've made about this woman 
at the well because what people focus on is the fact and we'll get there she says that jesus says she has had five husbands and the man you're with isn't your husband and so what most teachers have gone to is just the idea of, the, of this label of being promiscuous that she was a promiscuous woman that this trouble was kind of like all on her but i want to challenge that a little bit today i don't think the bible's focused on that as much as it's focused on her life being messy. I want to move from this idea of her shame as promiscuity to her shame as messy. And I'm going to talk about that and why we can make that shift, because there's a lot of dynamics going on with this, uh, this woman. Je what we do see is Jesus was willing to cross extraordinary cultural, social, and personal barriers to reach this woman. There were some strong barriers in the culture at this time that would have prevented, uh, prevented Jesus from reaching out, but he reached out anyway. And so this is what we're going to find. Jesus crosses the barriers we've created in order to bring hope. Jesus is a barrier crosser. He, he goes to people who we are afraid to, to, to connect with. So let's go to this idea of shame. Let's go to this idea of shame. We've all felt shame in our lives at, at different times. We, we know that feeling. We know how heavy it can feel at times. And there are some times when shame is warranted, right? Shame can be a good thing. Like if we lie as a kid, you, you lie to your parents and you get caught. You should feel shame, right? Because if you don't feel shame, you're just going to keep lying, <laughs> right? And hopefully our shame today brings us to a point where we're praying like, oh man, we see our need for God, right? If we live without shame, we live without this idea like, I actually need God. So shame is a good thing. Shame is a good thing before God. When we, when we experience the weight of the wrong that we've done, we can get on our knees and cry out to God and ask him to forgive us and restore us. And that's a good thing. And sometimes our shame that we feel maybe from others isn't warranted. It's just that we feel out of place in certain situations. Um, before we had kids, uh, Bonnie worked at a engineering firm where, where they built these amazing projects like hydroelectric dams and, and big wind turbines and all this stuff. And I got really nervous every time I had to go to the Christmas party because I was a youth pastor and I was a student. And so when I would hang out, you know, we were in this five-star hotel in downtown Portland, and they'd ask me what I did. Well, I'm a youth pastor, and I'm a student. And it doesn't really connect very well <laughs> with these guys who got a lot going on. You know, it's pretty impressive what they've got going on. And uh, I didn't have anything cool in my garage that I could talk about. I didn't have any neat projects I was working on. Anyways, sometimes we just feel out of place, right? And that's that's not warranted shame. That's just feeling, that's situational shame. That's just like we feel out of place. And so we're going to look at someone who maybe some of the shame was warranted, some of it wasn't, but who felt shame because her life was messy. Her life was messy. And she appeared to be an outsider in her own community because of her messy life. And by all accounts, she was someone that Jesus should have just passed by, but he didn't. He entered into uh, a conversation with her. So we're going to look. This is in John 4, verse 4. It says, Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. 
So he came to it. Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Bible gives us that context. So this chapter begins by Jesus trying to avoid attention. Uh, his ministry is starting to grow, and he's trying to avoid attention, especially from the Pharisees. And so he takes this detour into Samaria. And Samaria is a big character in this story. Uh, to the Jews, this was like taking a detour through Mordor. It's like, why would you go there? Mordor, if you're not aware, if you're not a nerd like me, it's a bad place. Um, it's not a good place. A lot, lots of fire and goblins and stuff. Um, but Jews didn't like Samaritans at all. They didn't like them at all. And so Jesus, Jesus takes this detour on purpose. He takes his disciples, and they go through Samaria. In Jewish eyes, Samaria is a land of failure. It's a land full of failure and rejects. The Jews and Samaritans didn't just not like each other, they hated each other. There were riots between the two places a lot. Um, they fought against each other, they killed each other, so you can imagine the, the, the weight of animosity that exists between these two groups of people. In fact, the riots would get so bad that it's recorded that Romans had to intervene in this, these skirmishes, right? The Romans would come in and try to pacify things. So you know it was bad. You know it was bad. And so there had been this long-time, long-standing hurt between these two people. And uh, the history on this is that Samaria in the Old Testament, it represents the, the northern kingdom. After Solomon died, Israel was split between the northern kingdom, whose capital was Samaria, the southern kingdom's capital was Jerusalem. And when they split, they went in two different directions. So Judea, Jerusalem, the city of David, um, had eight kings that kept their country focused on Yahweh, following Yahweh. Samaria had none. So Samaria fell into the cultures that were around them. Um, people see Samaria as more urban than uh, Jerusalem, a lot of pagan worship, led by their kings, invited in by their kings. And as a result, um, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to take over the northern kingdom in 722 BC, and the southern kingdom survived for another 130 years until Babylon took them over. Now, I, it, I'm sorry for the history lesson. Some of you are like, okay, when's this going to be over? Uh, no, but, but, in, uh, but, but the Assyrians had a really awful relocation program. And what they would do is they would take different people groups in their empire and they would just move them all over the place and mix them up. And so that's what happened is this northern kingdom got assimilated into this vast Assyrian empire. And so when they came back, they weren't really considered fully the people of God. They were, they were tainted, right? They weren't fully the people of God. And so you had the, the, 
the, uh, the Jews who are preserved in their, um, you know, in, in, their, in their tribe, and then you had the northern kingdom that was kind of scattered and came back, and they were all mixed up. In fact, they had a different Bible that they followed. It was just very messy. So if you think the Samaritan woman is messy, Samaria itself is just messy. It's just messy. And so because of this dynamic, um, the Jews lived in perpetual resentment of the Samaritans. Like, we got it right, you guys got it wrong. And this friction lasted for centuries and centuries to the point where it was just, this statement is said, the Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Like, treated them like lepers. Like, would turn and run. Would not talk to Samaritans. Now, we deal with resentment between people groups today in the world. It still exists. It's not from God. Right? It's not any resentment that you feel towards another group of people is not from God. In fact, Jesus would want you to cross over a barrier there. Um, but it still exists today. Um, and so the only way that we break through resentment like that is through Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who can help us break through those walls of resentment. For the Jews, they viewed the Samaritans through this lens of just being a failure, a social failure, a failed people, and their resentment grew and grew and grew. So it's no light thing that Jesus deliberately walked into Samaria. He chose to. He chose to go to the place that no self-respecting Jew would go. And what you see is that Jesus didn't see one group or his family as his people. He saw the world as his people right off the bat, right off the bat. So let's talk about this location that they meet for a minute. So Jesus meets this woman at a place called Jacob's Well. We're going to keep going into history, all right? I'm sorry. We're just going to keep going. I love history. Um, Jacob, so, so Jacob, if you know, is sort of the, the patriarch of both the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, this was a well that he built a long time ago. It was like 140 feet deep, and it had lasted at this point for 1,800 years. Can you think of something that's lasted for 1,800 years and is still in use? So what this well represents to these people is continual life. Like, hey, if everything else in the world is, is, is going bad, at least we got the well, you know? <laughs> we'll always have the well. It's been going for 1,800 years. We have the well. And I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking about there's sometimes we try to find life in, in institutions and traditions like that. And I know for me, um, baseball started this week for my kids. I'm going to make this comparison here. Baseball is sort of like, hey, if everything else is going wrong in the world, I still got baseball, you know? I can watch baseball. I can watch my kids play baseball. We can play baseball, and the world is at peace. You know, I really feel that. Um, but it's sort of like we find these institutions or hobbies or traditions that sort of center us, that sort of bring us peace. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what yours is. You have you have something. Maybe it's a, a generational hobby, you know, something you did with your grandfather, grandmother, parents that kind of continues into the, 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 the next generations. 
this well kind of represented that. It symbolized sustaining life. You know, it symbolized security and stability. And that's where Jesus meets her, and he does it on purpose. He meets her at this place where that represents life to this people. At least we have the well. And he didn't go there to condemn the well. He went there to show this woman that there's something even better than this well. There's life beyond this well. There's something even greater that you can be a part of. So he arrives, he comes in the heat of the day. She arrives in the heat of the day to draw water, which is not the normal time, which would imply that she wasn't well-liked. She came alone. Uh, she came at an off time. You know, shame tends to isolate us, doesn't it? Like if we have active shame in our life, our tendency is to hide. Our tendency is to dance a little bit. Like go to, maybe go to the grocery store at off hours or something like that. You know, just try to avoid and hide and get away. That's what shame does. And so she, she's doing this kind of dance and Jesus meets her there. When she comes, Jesus meets her. In her hiding, Jesus meets her. In her attempt to hide, that's where Jesus shows up. And he asks her, will you give me a drink? Will you serve me? Will you serve me? There's a lot of codes that Jesus broke here. First of all, um, it's one thing to talk to a Samaritan. How about sharing a cup with a Samaritan? No, definitely not okay. The other thing is, she doesn't just say, I'm a Samaritan. She says, I'm a Samaritan woman. Here's the next barrier at that time. Not only is she a Samaritan, she's also a woman, which might not click for us today, but back then, there were some really like big divides there, especially if you were a Jewish rabbi. There was a law, there was a rabbi that taught that if, if, if a, a man spent too much time speaking to a woman who wasn't his husband in public, he could go to hell, right? So, like, severe consequences. So, if you thought they, they might treat um, Samaritans like leopards, lep not leopards, not like leopards, <laughs> lepers, imagine how they treated a Samaritan woman. Like, even more, hey, stay away. Like, I don't even want to go there because I could... I could go to hell if I even talk to you, which that's not who God is. That, so this attitude towards women could be very severe, and it led to the exclusion of women, sort of like putting them on the periphery, not to be talked to or seen in public. And, 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 uh, and in that time, the, the culture there was, was really unkind towards women. The way that historians even wrote about women at this time, they, they wrote about them basically being naive and gullible. At, at, at these are some of the attitudes towards women that the historians wrote with. Um, Jesus, however, what's amazing is if you, if you see that the historians uh, kind of talk about women in a negative way, because uh, they're, they're all men, all the historians <laughs> writing back then are men, right? And they're kind of, and they paint them as naive and gullible. You have this ancient document about a man named Jesus that blows all those categories out of the water. That he actually is kind. That he doesn't shrink back. He doesn't care what people think. He enters into a conversation with not just a woman, but this woman. This messy Samaritan woman. 
He didn't see women as a potential pitfall, but he saw them as a child that God loves. And so he broke through barriers, not only racism, but sexism. He broke through these barriers, and he engaged with others, the ones that others shamed. Not only that, Jesus was willing to be shamed by others to enter into those relationships. And he asks this Samaritan woman for water from the well. And she's really surprised, but she's also intrigued. If she wasn't intrigued, she would just walk away, right? But, but she's intrigued. We're going to keep going in verse 10. This is Jesus talking to her. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So you think this is good. Wait till you receive what I give you. You think this is life. Wait till you receive the life that I give you. And Jesus makes the invitation to life to this woman, right? This Samaritan, this messy person. And I love that so far in the story, this woman's personal life has not been addressed, right? It's just the fact that she's a Samaritan and a woman, and we're going to get there. But Jesus doesn't even talk about her personal life before he offers her this living water, right? Jesus offers it to her right then and there for the taking. He doesn't wait. He doesn't tell her to get cleaned up. He's like, here it is. Do you want it? And he offers the same to us, no matter how messy we think we are, no matter how isolated our shame makes us. Jesus offers us that life here and now, whether we got it figured out or not. He offers us that life. He offers us a life that's more powerful and abundant than anything we can find in the world. And so Jesus's life today is more sustaining than anything else we could find. And in fact, it is eternal life. Not just life now, but life eternal. A vital spiritual relationship with God most high. So he speaks this to this woman, and then this is what she says. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors, see how she changes the topic. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in, in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is powerful in so many ways. That Jesus, who wasn't apt at this point to reveal his identity, revealed his identity to a woman with a messy life. Um, that he was kind and gentle in the way he presented the truth to her. Do you hear condemnation in Jesus' voice? <laughs> no. Jesus rolled with the fact that she had five husbands and talked about worship and talked about worship so when I look at this what I see more than anything is the kindness of Jesus to enter into our shame the kindness and not only kindness but clarity that he would come in and he would gently reveal the truth he would gently reveal himself without condemnation without disgust is Jesus uncomfortable with the fact that she had five husbands no is Jesus uncomfortable of what others might think? No. Jesus is not uncomfortable. We might get uncomfortable <laughs> when we talk to people whose life appears to be more messy than us. We might get uncomfortable. We might think about what others are thinking, but that's not Jesus. All of that is human protective instinct or comparison. Jesus is not like that. In fact, Jesus reveals himself to this, this woman. She is the one that he chose. And he, as he touches on her personal life, we see that she has this messy life. We see she has shame, whether warranted or not. And like I said, the details are more unclear than we might think. She could have been promiscuous. She could have been unlucky. Or she could have been both. Because there are two things we need to realize about this time and place is that women married really young and that men died often. Um, they didn't have the same kind of safety regulations <laughs> at that time that they do today. So men were a little more expendable back then. You know, there are lots of accidents and stuff. Lots of work accidents. As you might imagine, Israel in the first century, they didn't, they didn't have that same value of safety. In fact, there were many records of women being widowed twice before turning 20 in that time. So we need to consider that this, this woman didn't have, and they also didn't have much power to divorce their husbands as well. So there, they didn't have power to divorce. Um, so she could have been really unlucky, or she could have, had, she could have been barren, and she, she could have been rejected by several husbands because she was barren, and that could have been her shame. So I'm saying that yes, it could be it could be promiscuity, it could be unlucky, it could be that she was barren, it could be all those things. The point that this this story is making is not to to like shine her sin across the universe, is to say her life is really messy and really complicated. We don't understand it. <laughs> Maybe the Bible is really gracious not to reveal it, right? So either way, this woman is probably carrying the weight of shame, grief, and despair around with her. Trauma, for sure. 
and her life from the outside looks to looks like a train wreck looks like a total mess that's what we know that's what that's what jesus gives us you know i think we have this tendency to to just simplify people into good and bad categories right this person's good this person's bad we can do that a lot of times in comparison to our own life what we don't see is the whole story we don't see the complexity behind each person because each person is really really complex and and the trauma someone has experienced in their life is different than the trauma you've experienced in your life the options that someone has had in their life is different than the options you've experienced in your life and so each each one of us is is really really complex and and we what we see in this story what i see in this story is is a god who is kind <laughs> to someone who's experienced whether her fault or not a whole lot of trauma right and so now, how do we receive that as a church i think that should change the way that we engage people in our community that we would be careful not to throw people into good and bad categories but to see people as the way Jesus saw them, as people in, in process, that we would see people on a micro level, not a macro level, meaning that we wouldn't just categorize people and, and put them in, in one box, but we would see them, uh, put them in a big box, but we'd, we'd see them as, a, as an individual person who God is at work on, who is in a different part of the journey than we are. I think that's how God wants us to see people. This moves us towards grace and understanding. Uh, this moves us towards compassion. And so I want to end with this, because this is where the story kind of ends. Jesus removes the barriers of shame so that we can worship the Father together. Jesus empathized with this woman, but not just so that she could stay in her situation, but so that she could worship. Jesus can heal trauma. Jesus can, can, can help us overcome sin through the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't want to leave us as victims. Jesus wants to lead us into worship, and to worship him and worship him together with the world that he died to heal, right? So that means we can worship fully from our hearts that Jesus is the way to connection with each other. And that we can worship, he says, in spirit and in truth. Both are important. That we would worship the true God. You know, they, like he said, salvation comes from the Jews. Meaning that the accurate history of God has been handed to the Jews. Right? The truth of God came through the Jews. And now Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Right? That's what he's saying. So that means we look for truth in one place, but it's one Jesus for the whole world. It's not just for one group of people, it's for all people. And Jesus made that really clear at the beginning of his ministry by walking into Samaria to proclaim this news. Jesus didn't go and talk to the rabbis and let them know, it's okay guys, the Messiah is here. He went to this woman at this well, at this time, in this place, because he cared about all people. And he cared about messy people. And he cared about people who didn't have it all figured out. So, 
If you want to reduce the good news down to one word, it's simply Jesus. That is the revelation of God, is Jesus. Peter said it emphatically in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, speaking of Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. One Savior for the whole world. It feels exclusive, but it's radically inclusive. Everybody is invited. There are billions of people, millions of cultures, thousands of people groups, and there's one Savior for all of them. Jesus. So today, as we close, I hope what you hear, I don't know where you're at today, I don't know what your battle with shame is, but I hope what you hear is that Jesus wants to draw close to you. Jesus, want, even if you're hiding, even if you feel far, even, even if you feel shame, Jesus wants to draw close and offer living water and offer a better life. And he doesn't enter into it to, sh to shame us or to, to hurt us, but to restore us, to restore us to a life that uh, he wants to give us. And so as we close today, here's a question to ruminate on as we end in worship. Where do you need Jesus to visit you today? Where is your well? Where is the place you're hiding? Where is the place where you find shame? Where is the place that you are running from God? Because Jesus wants to visit you in that place today. Jesus wants to visit you and sit with you and talk with you and give you living water. And if you feel dry, a lot of Christians talk about feeling dry, this could be a day where Jesus just pours out on you. As I was praying this morning, the word that I got was the word receive. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need us to work. He want, he's giving us something to receive. And he's giving something for you today to receive. We don't receive because we work. We receive because of his grace. And that is the invitation today to just receive. We're going to close in worship today. Uh, Marcel's going to invite us to, to receive at the altar today. Um, but I want to pray, and then uh, we're going to close in worship this morning. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And Lord, I thank you that you are a God who pursues messy people, like me and like others. God, nobody's got life figured out. Lord, those who think they have life figured out have a, have a good facade going. But Lord, there is mess lurking under the surface of all of our lives. And Jesus, I praise you that you enter into it. Lord, allow your spirit to bind us together as the people of God here in this community. Allow your spirit to, to cut through the mess, help us find restoration, and help us walk in the love of Jesus so that we can pour that love out to our community, so that we, can, we have something to offer. God, we don't want to offer our good works to people. We want to offer living water. And guess what? We're not the source of that water. You are. Jesus, you are the source. So Lord, pour that water on us so we can pour it out to the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>